0: The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together, a path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia, our region and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and today I'm here on my own, or at least hosting on my own, and missing my amazing co-host, Arna Greta Hunter, terribly. But Arna Greta will be back with us next week. The first week of September marks National Child Protection Week in Australia. This year, the theme for National Child Protection Week is Every Child in Every Community Needs a Fair Go, highlighting that where we start matters. And yet, not all children in Australia do have a fair go. We've talked quite regularly on the podcast about the inequality of childhoods and the fact that one in six children in Australia live in poverty. And far too many children are subjected to abuse, violence and neglect. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, in its 2022 Child Protection Snapshot, noted that one in 32 Australian children had received child protection services in the previous year. And recently on the pod, we spoke with Professor Daryl Higgins, a lead researcher on the Australian Maltreatment Study. That study surveyed people over the age of 16 about their experiences of maltreatment as children and found that child maltreatment is widespread. Almost one in three Australians over the age of 16 had experienced physical abuse as a child. Just over 28% had experienced sexual abuse and just over 30% had experienced emotional abuse. Almost 40% of Australians were exposed to domestic violence as a child. These numbers are confronting, and they indicate that children today are likely to be experiencing maltreatment in shockingly high numbers. Australia has in place a National Strategy for Child Protection, which aims to ensure that children in Australia reach their full potential by growing up in safe and caring homes, free from harm and neglect. And that strategy aims to make significant and sustained progress in reducing rates of child abuse and neglect and in reducing intergenerational impacts. In the lead up to National Child Protection Week, we're asking how we're faring in achieving these aims and what we need to do to ensure that every child in every community really does have a fair go and is safe and supported. And to talk through these issues, We have two amazing guests. Associate Professor Tim Moore is Deputy Director at the Institute of Child Protection Studies at the Australian Catholic University, where he leads the Institute's work to strengthen services and systems and to make them more responsive to children and to young people. Tim is internationally recognised as a child and youth researcher and as a children's rights advocate. He's provided advice to several inquiries and commissions, including the National Royal Commission into the Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. Tim, it is really great to have you with us today. Welcome.
1: It's lovely to see you, Sharon. Thanks for having me.
0: And we also have with us Rani Kumar. Rani is the Deputy CEO of NAPCAN and was previously Head of Policy, Research and Campaign Strategy. Rani has worked as an early education policy officer with UNICEF in Bangladesh and in the United Kingdom as a social policy officer with Catch-22, an organisation that supports young people leaving out-of-home care and NAPCAN, the organisation that Rani leads, has been running National Child Protection Week for the past 30 years. Rani, you haven't been there for three decades, but you have been responsible for a number of National Child Protection Weeks and it is wonderful to have you with us today.
2: Thanks so much, Sharon. It's great to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast.
0: (laughs) We love to hear that. It's good (laughs) to have you with us. (laughs) Rani, I wonder if we could start briefly by talking about Child Protection Week. And in introducing you, I briefly mentioned the aims of National Child Protection Week. But I wonder if you could share with us in a little more detail what National Child Protection Week is all about and and what it aims to do this year. Sure. Happy to.
2: One thing I'd just like to clarify is NAPCAN does stand for the National Association for Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect. So that's what NAPCAN is. And I'm the deputy CEO. there, not quite leading, but close enough to leading the organization. And we are really passionate about prevention at NAPCAN. And Child Protection Week is really quite a complex campaign because with rather limited funding, we're aiming to engage people at all levels of the community across Australia to promote child safety and well-being. But unlike many other national campaigns, it's not just awareness or fundraising. It's about changing thinking and attitudes and behaviour ultimately by building knowledge and skills across the sector and the broader community however and it's a big however we're not resourced enough but our ambition is to make that happen we want to bring new partners along each year people are doing lots of great things out there with their own communities and we know that the resources we provide seem to resonate we get we do a stakeholder survey and we hear back about how it's working for different people adapting it across you know health or justice as well as early education not just child protection which is our aim to bring other sectors along we want to share new evidence and build new connections that can drive that change towards primary prevention or whole of population sort of focus on children's safety and well-being but that is the challenge to build a new system together and child protection week is just a week in there of course child protection should be a priority every day of the year but the week is a way to shine a light on key issues share evidence and focus some advocacy work. So it is a sector-wide initiative. We encourage all organisations to get along uh, and get involved and have meaningful conversations about what you can do to support every child to have a fair go. I will just say NAPCAN, being the size that we are, we coordinate the week but we certainly can't do it alone. So we channel our focus into shifting attitudes to child abuse and neglect and orienting the sector Broadly speaking, people who work with children and their families, not the child protection sector itself, and decision makers in the wider community to better understand prevention, which is preventing harm before it occurs in our definition.
0: Rani, that work that you do around changing attitudes, around bringing evidence to the conversations and to building coalitions is is just so important. And bringing not just organisations, but communities along as we think about child protection is so important incredibly important to preventing child abuse. Tim, I wonder if we could step back from the importance of those community efforts for just a moment and talk a little bit about protecting children in institutions. And you've done a lot of work around this. And some of those issues in institutions were highlighted very disturbingly during the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. And there have also been many other inquiries And in the last month, we've heard of that truly shocking case of a former childcare worker who's been charged with more than 1600 child abuse offences, including rape against 91 very young children. The idea of safeguarding is one that's emerged as important in preventing abuse in a range of institutions. Tim, I wonder if you could talk us through what safeguarding means. We hear that so often, but it's often not clear what it means. And can you talk us through the principles that underpin it?
1: Sure. So I suppose it's one of those those big questions. A lot of people use the terminology of safeguarding to refer to a lot of things, but in regards to to child abuse prevention it's really looking at how do we within an institutional context how do we drive cultural change so that children can be protected from from abuse and that 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 culture is really embedded in in everyday thinking and practice so it's it's not only something that we do just during child protection week or just when we have someone come in to audit our policies it's something that we do as part of the cause we think to ourselves you know What's going on for children here? Are they okay? What are the things that we have wrapped around them to ensure that they're safe and that we're providing them with every opportunity to raise concerns if if uh, they encounter an unsafe person, place or situation? For me, though, we know that's a sort of formal definition of, of safeguarding. But when we ask children and young people what they want, ultimately they talk more about what they want organizations to have achieved rather than than what organizations are doing so say for example the principals often talk about you know resourcing um staff to ensure that they understand issues around child sexual abuse for example the children and young people when you ask them they they talk about wanting to to feel cared about that they want to feel respected that they want adults to listen to them that they think that a child safe organisation is one within which every child has an adult that they can turn to for good information, for support and help if they're worried or concerned. But unfortunately, when we talk to children young people um, across the country, we often hear from them that they they aren't well informed. They don't know what to do. They don't know what they should expect of adults. Um, and in fact, they often get mixed messages around what um, adults should be um, responsible for and the like, and that often they feel quite alone when they're encountering scenarios that, that don't make them feel safe, or where they f- feel creeped out, or, or are concerned about the behaviour of someone else. So, for me, safeguarding is not only about putting protections around children, but also fostering a sense of safety for for kids, and that's important not only in regards to preventing abuse, but also you know if we want kids to learn and grow and develop then they need to have psychosocial safety. And part of that is is confidence in in those people who are around them.
0: Tim, in in the research that I do and in research that we're doing at the moment with children who are growing up in contexts of poverty, it's Mm. really confronting to hear how many children talk about the lack of care in their lives, you know, the fact that they have no one that listens, that they feel they have no one to turn to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can start to build a culture of care.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it really resonates. I mean, it, it, prior to being a researcher, I was a youth worker, and you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking of a an encounter I had many years ago. I, I used to run camps for kids, and therefore knew many of the children, young people growing up in Canberra where I was living at the time. And I remember one day I was walking um, along the road in in the city centre. And uh, from behind me, I heard this this voice calling, oh, Tim, Tim, Tim. Um, and I turned around and there was this this young Aboriginal boy, Jason, who yeah, was in, in the laneway. And I ran up to him and said, oh, my God, it's so fantastic to see you. And he's going, oh, this is awesome. I was you know hoping to catch someone that I knew. And then all of a sudden he burst into tears. I said, Jason, what's going on? What's wrong? And he goes, I'm so sorry, Tim. I said, what are you sorry about? And he said, Oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I thought I could, I thought I could do it by myself. You know, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm 13 now and, you know, I should be strong. I should be a man. And, and, you know, mum and, mum and I've been living in the back of the car for the last four or five weeks, but I, you know, I want to man up and do the right thing. And I, I wanted to be able to look after mum, but I just can't do it. I can't do it by myself. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I have to ask for help. And I thought, how have we got to a scenario? where a child feels like they're solely responsible for not only their own safety and well-being, but that of their families as well? How is it that we as a community aren't wrapping these kids and these families with the supports and resources that are so required? And, and part of it, I think, is is us asking those questions of what part can I play in this? You know, the, the, Jason was distraught because so many people walked past him and his mum, and didn't say, "Can I help you, or can I find someone that can help you?" And you know, I think one of the the key things that we see in cohesive and safe communities for children and young people is where adults, as a collective, notice things, watch out for things, and and are not bystanders. They they actively engage and say, "Okay, how can I support you to get the help that that you need?" That's obviously a graphic case, but but it's also in you know neighbourhoods and the like too. You know, if we hear rows that are happening in the family home, yes, it's uncomfortable and awkward to to knock on the door and ask if things are okay or ask the family when things are quieting down if there's anything that, that you can do to help. But really as a community, if we're if we're really committed to the safety of our, our children and ensuring that all our families are getting what they need, we need to start having those conversations and to be a bit more active in that regard.
0: Tim, it's such a powerful story and I hear similar things from the children that we work with and the extent to which children try to protect their parents Mm -hmm. and part of the reason they don't ask for help is that they don't want to land their parents in trouble Mm. because they're concerned their parents may be seen as not looking after them properly. Rani, these are issues that, that you work with every day as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these issues.
2: Yeah, so much of what Tim was just saying there resonated and I think is a great way to actually talk a little bit about some work that we did together, Sharon, as NAPCAN as a small partner, but with the Benevolent Society and I think it was Jan Mason and yourself as the lead researchers a little while back and it was about uh, children's views on communities and why communities matter. And so much of what Tim was just saying there is about creating that culture of care for children and having those helpful, supportive adults around them. I recall there was such a strong finding of relationships being so central to children's experience of a neighbourhood and them feeling so much more safe and included. If they had adults around them that knew them, that knew their name or that smiled, you know, friendly neighbours was a big thing and if they felt that adults were rude or dismissive toward them, it immediately created that sense of being um, not important and feeling a bit unsafe. So there's a lot we can do at a community level by looking around at what are those factors those things that we can control i remember those things like dangerous driving and you know public sort of littering and broken glass in parks you know making sure spaces are safe for children for them to feel that they are important and included as citizens in their own community not just as an afterthought of their families but there's also the point Tim, that you were making that really resonated. You know, there's a stigma to asking for help. And we find that with adults as well, that parents are really reluctant to seek help because that often means that you're not a very good parent or you might have your child removed. And particularly in First Nations communities, we know that that's a real concern for seeking help. And we really need to look at what does a public health approach look like for. Safety and wellbeing of children? How do we centre children so that there are wraparound services and a sense that, you know, children are at the centre of this work and we can all make a difference, including all the different uh, components in a community. And it's not just the job of child protection, which unfortunately come in too late once harm has already occurred.
0: Rani, I think those issues about how we actually prevent problems from emerging is so important because even if we respond well, and often we don't. But even if we respond, well, once abuse has taken place, children are traumatised for life and they carry that for life. So how do we try to to prevent that from ever happening? And I must say, I'm I'm really delighted that that community jigsaw that we developed out of the research we did together a few years ago now is being used as as one of the images of Child Protection Week this this year. And as you said, Rani, relationships and safety just came up again and again in that research, comes up again and again in the research that we're currently doing. And one of the things that children have often said is that just having someone that's friendly makes a difference in their lives. And I think that really causes us to reflect on how we interact with children and how often we'll ignore children or we'll make a negative comment remember children talking running you talked about dangerous driving and children in that research would often say they felt that no place was their own they felt unsafe when they were in their communities they were conscious that they were very adult spaces and one boy said I can't even ride my bike if I ride it on the road I get yelled at and told to get on the footpath if I ride it on the footpath I get yelled at and told to ride on the road and so children are growing up in spaces that are very adult centric um, and are generally feeling unsafe so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised when they don't turn to adults for help. Tim, I, I wanted to to turn to to some research that you've been doing and to to draw on a quote that really struck me from one of your articles and you've written about the ways in which discourses around safeguarding and around protecting children are often shaped by legal, bureaucratized and neoliberal ideas which focus the safeguarding gaze on the individual child, parent or family rather than on the broader social context in which children's lives are lived. And that's the context we've just been talking about. And you and your colleagues have noted that there is, an, is increasing attention being paid to the structural changes that we need to protect children. I wonder if, if you could talk us through what it is that we miss when we individualise safeguarding and protecting children and what some of those structural changes are that are needed?
1: I suppose one of the things, and it's probably the, the most uh, difficult challenge that, uh, that children have posited to us, is that they understand that, that abuse occurs because they're vulnerable, that they're vulnerable not only because they're, they're small and often uh, are weaker physically than adults that's not always the case but more because of the way that they're treated by adults and the way that communities see children think about children value or not children and the way that they therefore engage with a whole range of different services and systems so kids are very aware That the world is set up for adults, and that 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 adults are often very protective, and are often aiming to do the right thing by children, but that children don't necessarily have a lot of power or authority. That in comparison with adults, they believe that they they're less likely to be believed, less likely to be given choices. less likely to be able to be equipped to deal with the challenges that they encounter and that ultimately they want their positioning in community to be changed somewhat you know so that when a child says this is what I want and what I need adults don't automatically dismiss their views thinking that they're infantile or innocent or or naive or what have you and say actually there's there's some really important things that we can glean from this individual child but children as a as a group. I think children have often told us that well, we do an activity with some kids saying, you know, if you were the Prime Minister or the King for the day, what would you do differently? And and often children will talk about the fact that they would before they enacted any policy or set up any legislation, that they would stop and think, well, how's this going to affect children? How's this going to impact on on kids? And they are very aware that that adult stakeholders will often think about how Decisions that are being made will influence different communities and the like, but are reticent to say that that they're keeping kids' needs and wishes at at the front of what's being done. So at at the very broadest level, we need to, I think, rethink how we position kids and whether or not how the structures that surround children um, and their families and their communities might unwittingly, render children more vulnerable than than what they might have been otherwise
2: i um, strongly agree with that tim i think that that's a really good point about how we hear children because it has become a bit of a trite kind of point you know you've got to listen to the voices of children everyone must involve children and then children are over consulted in some ways of just you know going out there and just consulting but what is the Participation, what does that actually look like? So I'd love to hear your reflections a bit further down about what that looks like in a meaningful way to hear from children and young people, so we're actually valuing their input. And Sharon, that takes me to something that I hope I remember correctly from the Communities Matter research, that jigsaw that we keep referring to that's on the Child Protection Week poster this year, is part of your process was to talk to children but then to collate that information and then go back and validate that and make sure that the sense you were making as adults of that Um, knowledge that children had shared with you was actually what they were saying. And I recall there was an example where something in one of the images seemed like it was a, 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 you know, like a friend hiding in the background or something. And it was like, oh, no, that's actually a scary person or something. And you're like, oh, like it was such an important part of the work to go back and validate.
0: Ronnie, I think that's right. And, and it's so important that we have conversations with children. And mm. very often when we talk about you know, the voices of children, and I agree it's become such a, such a slogan that it's almost meaningless at times, but you know, when we talk about the voices of children, what we really need to be saying is how do we have conversations to children and how do we listen to children rather than just a, a one-off consultation and assuming we then understand the complexity of children's lives. Absolutely. At NAPCAN,
2: we've set up a NAPCAN Youth Speak Out um, group of 18 amazing individuals across Australia. And it is very much now a commitment for us to embed their thinking and into our processes so that it isn't that one-off consultation and just have a chat, but to actually go, we're, we're starting this new program. What do you think? Or this theme for Child Protection Week can really involve young people in the sense making of our work, but also in validating what they're telling us and making sure that we're on track along the way, not just in one-off intervals.
1: Excellent. I, I totally agree with you both. I think that we do need to change the language a little bit or, or problematize it a bit. You know, kids are saying we we talk all the time, we ask things all the time, and nothing nothing happens. Um, and also, children and young people often get frustrated by adult-initiated, adult-led processes that are all about achieving adult goals. And they're saying, well, actually, in my day-to-day, I want to have conversations where people will actually listen to me and and take into consideration what I'm saying. They also get frustrated. We worked with, with groups of kids in um, Tasmania and they said, you know, why is it that adults wait right to the last minute to have conversations with us? You know, surely it's adults' responsibility to be asking questions really early on for adults to be noticing and, and responding to things and for us to not be required to raise concerns for adults to already have an inkling that something might be wrong and to, to come in and say, what can I do and how can I, I help you? So, you know, in some of the, the work that's been done internationally, we've, we've started to change the language of participation from voice to audience and influence you know, what's actually happening with, with kids' views and how are we as adults, policy makers, decision makers, parents, um, aunts and uncles, what have you, how are we not only communicating back with kids of what, what's been done, but meaningfully changing what we're doing and what the outcomes that, um, that, that are being achieved.
0: And so often it's all about building relationships and meaningful relationships. We're going to take just a short break now. And we will be back in just a moment. So, listeners, please don't go away.
1: Everyone knows
2: therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
1: Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday.
0: Welcome back. We're here talking with Tim Moore and Rani Kumar around issues of protecting children as we approach Australia's National Child Protection Week. Tim, we often see something of a tension between protecting children on the one hand and ensuring that they are part of their communities on the other and before the break we were talking about the importance of people engaging with children of building relationships with children but very often adults are a little reluctant to do that because they're concerned about the child protection implications how do we begin to reconcile some of those tensions
1: so I just said, I think it's really important for us to be really clear, particularly during National Child Protection Week but throughout the year, that the safest kids are those that are surrounded by strong, protective, trustworthy adults. Now, we need to obviously acknowledge that sometimes adults can be a threat for a child and that we need to, protective adults need to be watching out to be noticing and to going, okay, this, this person may not be okay, but we shouldn't come in with the assumption that adults are potentially threats to kids because what we're seeing now is what we saw you know 20 or 30 years ago with the stranger danger discourse where you know we got to a situation where children were starting to be scared of adults and at the same time adults were scared about how they interact with children for fear of the way that other people might interpret it though so for example just the other week I was at the local shopping center and there was a child who was Obviously lost their mum, was absolutely distraught, was crying. There was a whole huddle of adults who were uh, walking around that child who you know must have been six or seven who just weren't engaging with this child, and, and there was this fear, I think, of people going, "Oh well, my you know if I, if I grab the child by the hand, then someone will think that I'm trying to abduct them, or people might misinterpret my intentions or what have you. That child's not safer because adults are scared about children. That child's not safer because adults aren't taking interest. And so we need to sort of challenge ourselves and say, yes, we need to ensure that unsafe adults aren't placing kids at risk, but we as a community still need to wrap kids up with um, with those people who are going to be able to support them. And that's that's within an organisational context too. We need to be asking the question, are these strategies that we're putting in place ensuring that kids are safer or are they maybe protecting the organisation from reputational risks or or the like. And I think that's really important that we hold fast. We use the evidence to understand what risks are, but we hold some risk and we manage some risks. And as a community, we say we're going to do what we can to ensure that children are safe and that we're doing things that are actually going to have that outcome that we're hoping for.
0: Rani, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of those issues and, and, and how we reconcile those Real tensions that Tim mapped out there. Yeah, absolutely. This is something we grapple with all
2: the time, but particularly in Child Protection Week, we'll get, you know, really concerned emails and phone calls saying, what do we do? We're we're a bit concerned, but then not really sure how to step into things. And obviously, in individual cases, it is very important to, you know, contact your local police or your Child Protection Authority, depending on the level of risk or if it's a, you know, whatever the context is. But the broader answer for us is about that cultural change and that sort of conversation we need nationally to have about centering children and their experience and how important these relationships are so that adults can hear that if they are a friendly adult in a child's life it actually makes a difference it actually does keep children safer and that they are more seen there are more eyes on them from safer adults you know so we need to create these safe and supportive and inclusive environments where families and children feel like they belong so from our uh, theme this year of the Where You Start Matters, we've got the jigsaw on there to show people there's ways that you can come into this conversation. But then there are obviously policy and structural levers we also need to pull on. So at the moment with this Penis childcare case that's been going around in the media. We know that the conversation is very much about you know safeguarding within organisations, and like Tim said, you know a lot of it is like oh, make sure our organisation is protected, as well as obviously children are ultimately protected. But there's this kind of tension between what we need to do to make sure that we're covered, but really the conversation is also about bigger things like workforce. You know, we know the childcare workforce is really strapped at the moment. There's just not enough people. And that means there's an increase in the casualization of these positions. There's less, you know, relationship building, which just before the break, Sharon, you were saying how important relationships are to children. And, and then there's less good sort of scrutiny between the team and management in childcare centres and other services where workforce is such an issue. So this is something that governments can get involved in. These are systems levels issues. You know, there's been, COVID has had a big impact on this, um, but this is the kind of thing, there's, you know, remuneration and making sure that we retain this good staff that we have and how we invest in these care, you know, occupations is a really critical part of the conversation we need to have. We can't keep having these conversations in silos as if children's safety and well is over here, childcare provisions over here, and then workforce is over there because that's you know a grown-up problem that the government needs to solve, but the children's problems are over here. I think that's a really big part of the solution is bringing people together to have a national conversation about prevention across portfolios and have, you know, Treasury and everyone at on board to be able to say, well, how do we actually align all the existing plans and strategies we have to really uh, highlight a public health approach? How do we actually make this happen if we are serious, which, you know, the child maltreatment study that you referenced earlier, Sharon, showed us that we must be serious. We must be taking these prevalence numbers to heart and challenging ourselves as a society to do better.
0: Rani, I think those those issues are, are just so important, and it's how we put all of those pieces together. And one of the things that that strikes me when we talk about childcare, and of course we've had that awful case, so there's a lot of discussion around childcare at the moment. But one of the things that that always strikes me is while we have some wonderful frameworks and strategies in place that are aimed at, at the childcare centres themselves, or have been built by childcare centres themselves. The national conversation is really around productivity. It's not around how childcare can be an early learning experience, how it can be positive for children, how it can promote children's rights. It's a very adult-centered conversation. Absolutely.
2: I, I couldn't agree more that, you know, we always talk about women's participation as if that's the end goal in and of itself, uh, when we know that these um, facilities can be such a great place for children uh, to, you know, experience different things outside of their family home, build those early relationships. I actually sit on the board of SDN, which is a childcare service in New South Wales, and it's brilliant hearing about some of the work that goes on. And it's such a challenging job. We need to value these workers better, many of whom are are doing a fantastic job of keeping children engaged and learning and safe. Um, And it's really kind of disappointing when the media tends to focus on these outlying cases and make us all focus on the negatives and the conversation being about productivity, about, you know, how do we get more services and the gaps. It's always about the gaps and the deficits. We're not actually talking about the positives of what it can provide. But just on that media point, if I can just go on a little tangent there, I just want to say that we find, you know, at NAPCAN, a lot of our work is about, like, how do we communicate about these issues? Because the way we talk about them makes a very big difference to what the community hears and how things are progressed. And the demonization, really, of particular individuals really is a very unhelpful place to take people because what it does is it makes it sound like it's a it's a one-off issue over there somewhere. It's this, you know, really dramatic situation when we know. And what the ACMS, the child maltreatment study, showed us is that the prevalence of abuse and neglect is much more, is wider than we had thought before. And so these cases, while they need to be given due attention and while we do need to challenge ourselves to respond to things like this and look at the systems that failed to pick this up much earlier in this particular case, it doesn't really help us have that broader conversation about prevention and what's really needed to achieve that long-term change for children and people so that every child in every community can have a fair go. It is about, you know, what they call like the salience bias. So when you talk to the average person on the street, they'll start thinking about these cases and go, oh, you know, that, that horrible thing. And it others, these families, when what we really want is to bring parents into the conversation. We want people to have a bit of empathy for the parents that might be needing support, those families and the children, and thinking about how do we actually create those supportive networks around um, children and their families so abuse and neglect is less likely to occur. And, you know, really thinking in a strengths-based and a responsive way.
0: And I think, Rani, Tim, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I think there is a very important distinction between the very serious crimes that were committed in that particular case that we talked about of the childcare worker and the crimes that have been committed against children in institutions and the situations that may arise in families that are under incredible pressure. And neglect is a child protection issue, but I've often argued that poverty is often misunderstood as neglect and poverty is one of the structural problems that we need to address if all children are to be protected, Tim, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on how you see that relationship between poverty and neglect.
1: Oh, lovely that uh, that we're talking about the big P, because often, particularly in my sphere in child protection research, people don't talk about poverty enough and the 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 stress that that poverty can place on a on a family broadly, and that. A lot of these families may experience neglect, which I'll talk about in a moment, but also you know, physical and emotional abuse also occurs within those environments. And obviously, if we're wanting to prevent abuse, then we need to say, how do we take those stressors off family? And we can only do that by redressing issues of, of poverty. But I think it's absolutely true, Sharon, and for the last 25 um, years at least, we've been really grappling with the notions of neglect because we recognise that Neglect can have significant consequences for children throughout their lifespan, but in lots of ways, neglect's different to other forms of abuse because it's the absence of a behavior in, in many circumstances. Sometimes, yes, parents may not provide their kids things for a whole range of reasons, but most absolutely overwhelmingly number of cases, it's, it's because the family doesn't have the resources. And if you, if you dig a little bit deeper, you know, mum or dad might not have eaten for three three or four days because they want to provide for their child. Um, just because the child's missing one or two meals doesn't mean that that the parent is complicit in that or is... Intentionally causing harm to their child because if we speak to all these parents, you know, they want the best for their children and they're embarrassed and upset that they're not able to provide it for it. And so the state response has to be different. The state has to be saying, asking the question, not asking the question, why aren't you providing for your child? What's wrong with you? But asking, why haven't you been able to access the supports? Why haven't you got the safety net? Why as a community are we thinking that it's okay for a child to live in this situation rather than putting the blame on you as a as a parent so you know I, I think that for lots of reasons um, policy reasons neglect is often characterized as a form of abuse but we do absolutely need to unsettle that and unpick that and have a different response for those families.
2: I completely agree, Sharon, also with your point around the institutional abuse being quite different and distinct to what occurs in the family home. And what we definitely are seeing and would like to see more of is this greater understanding of how we support parents, because children do better when parents are supported. How do we actually get more supports accessed by parents, because some of them exist. And I know when you had Catherine Little from Snake on, she was talking a lot about poverty and the impacts. And when neglect is, you know, sort of confused with poverty, and instead of the helps and supports coming in, there's blame and stigma. And that does not help anyone. It doesn't help the child, it doesn't help the family, and it really doesn't even help society overall. You know, families are not going to get out of that situation unless we take it as a shared responsibility. This is a, you know, it is a public issue. It is something we need a broader response to, making sure that every child gets a good start. And it's not just about the early years, it's also about the middle years and continuing through adolescence. I think it's a really important you know, thing that we often overlook is that young people are, you know, missing often in these conversations. Where are they? Where, where are their needs being met when they're in between being a child and really in that sort of vulnerable, protective lens that people tend to put on children um, and they're not yet an adult. You know, we see that a lot in when children, when young people end up leaving um, out of home care, for example, and that transitioning to care is a really critical time. But where are those supports, you know? So, so much of prevention is about before harm occurs. But there's also those children who are in out-of-home care, for example, and transitioning to adulthood, where that is another opportunity for prevention. So prevention's not this linear thing that we can just think of it as happening right at the beginning and then we just forget about it because, oh no, now harm's occurred um, and the child's been removed. But how do we actually support along the way? And I think, you know, in here, I'm just going to throw some, like another thought that I have, is I don't think we have enough representation um, of diverse workers across leadership and decision-making in the policy space, in the social space. So, what I mean by that is, you know, It is different if you're coming from a culturally and linguistically diverse background. It is different if you are a First Nations person. It is different if you are part of the LGBTIQ um, community or if you are in a regional remote community because there are different constraints and often when – you know, I go to meetings and roundtables, etc. I look around and I think I'm probably the only person of colour that I can see. That's not to say that somebody else might not be from a diverse background, but to say my experience is often different. And just to share a quick little personal anecdote, when we're talking about supporting parents, I know that when you have a child, it is a pivotal moment in your life. And in our multicultural community, we need to be better informed in how we're supporting families, of different kinds. And I know I received a lot of conflicting advice from medical professionals, maternal health nurses, and my family. And navigating that when I was sleep deprived and exhausted and this new experience was really hard. Um, and I'm a well-resourced individual. Luckily, I feel very privileged to be in the situation I'm in. So I was able to find my way, but it wasn't and still isn't always easy. So I think, you know, this is a bigger conversation about not just designing policies in a certain way, but, and not just co-designing at the end of the delivery mode, but really thinking about how we have different voices informing, including children and young people, all types um, and all stages of policy and programming.
0: This is a conversation that I would like to continue for much, much longer, but we're we're coming towards the end of our time together. And as we do, Tim, I'd like to ask you in particular a, a little bit about your thoughts on Australia's current national child protection strategy, Safe and Supported, and that targets specific groups of, of children. It prioritises children and families with multiple complex needs, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children children and young people with disability or or parents or carers with disability, and children and young people who've experienced abuse and neglect, including those who've experienced out-of-home care. And so in some ways this takes us towards what we were talking about earlier, the the importance of supporting those who need the support. But we do often hear some debate around a public health approach that's much more broad-based to child safety and, and child protection versus that more targeted approach. I'd love to hear your reflections on, on each of those approaches and how we balance them. Is there attention, or can they be easily balanced?
1: Well, I think the first thing to note is that, that we need to have broad policy around children and young people, not just those who are experiencing difficulty. If we want to take a public health approach, we have to be going, how are we thinking about children in our broader policies, our economic policies and the likes, to give families... A fair go, so that children don't end up uh, get to that, that position where you know we're we're concerned about children's safety. In regards to those groups, you know, secondary prevention really is about saying what types of young people are more at risk than others, and how do we have more of a concerted effort to intervene so that they're safe and and supported. So in lots of ways. Investing in programs for those groups of kids is, is absolutely vital. But you're right, until we have a, a, a broad sense of this is what we expect for our children, this is what we think children need to grow and develop, and this is what families need to be able to ensure that kids are provided with this childhood that that, that we want and need for them, we're going to have issues. I think that I've been quite pleased over the last couple of weeks in particular in in that a couple of policies, including, say, the um, plan for reducing violence against women and children, have actually changed the rhetoric. So in the past, with that that policy, it was very much about supporting women and supporting families so that children might have better outcomes. But for the first time in this new plan, we've actually said children are, are victims of family violence in their own right, and they need to be targeted. In the first plan, a lot of the interventions, particularly for boys, were about intervening so that they wouldn't become adult offenders now it's saying actually we want to give kids a safe space to grow and for those that have been experiencing um, family violence for them to heal and recover so the rhetoric has changed and I think that's that's a crucial aspect of national policy that we we need to see kids as as clients or what have you in their own right and to not to, to think about them in regards to who they're going to become, but also think about well, what's, what's their needs to have a good life, to, to experience the joy and wonder that we want for our kids and to be able to, to achieve the goals that they have for, for themselves and their parents have for them too.
0: We will need to to draw this conversation to a close. And, and, Tim, they're such powerful ideas to leave us with as we do wrap up the conversation. But as we come to an end, I'd, I'd love to ask a two-part question of each of you. Rani, maybe you first. What do governments need to do as a key priority to keep children safe, supported and protected? And, of course, there's much that, you, that governments can do, but is there something that, that you think is right at the top of that priority list? And the second part of that question, what message would you like people to take away from National Child Protection Week this year and from this conversation?
2: Wow. Big questions, Sharon, (laughs) to end on.
0: An easy one. An easy one to end on. Yes, why not?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, I think where we can start, and I kind of uh, alluded to this earlier, for governments as a key priority is to bring together the different frameworks and plans that already exist and really, really focus on prevention. What does prevention look like and prevention of child maltreatment? And we know that from the child maltreatment study, for example, and from, you know, literature all across the globe, that childhood trauma causes long-term adverse outcomes for children as adults and for society overall. So we want governments, if they could, as a key priority, bring together different diverse portfolios together to really focus on the prevention of child maltreatment. And what message I'd like people to take away is that child abuse and neglect is preventable. And we can do it in, you know, it, it is not a, um, it, is, it is a problem that everyone has a role in solving at the community level, but also in influencing government and organisations to, to think about children differently.
0: Fabulous messages, Rani, and really important messages to both government and community. Tim, what's your key priority for government action and, and that message you'd like us all to take away?
1: I suppose to wrap the two questions together, I, I have been disheartened as a child protection advocate over the last couple of years where we've seen children's safety as being a, a bit of a, a football pass from one place to another. You know, it, it saddens me that there's been so many conversations about the risks of kids hearing a drag queen reading a story at the local library or having a sex ed book going out. Um, and that, that the community is all concerned about grooming and concerned about kids' sexual safety but aren't willing to step up and say, actually, this isn't okay and that we're going to to meaningfully engage with children and young people and find some solutions together. So my my messages for governments are to think about how we're both enabling children and young people to be empowered to be able to uh you know, take a lead in this area, but at the same time, to ensure that kids don't feel responsible for for their own protection. So my my message for all of us during our National Child Protection Week is that you know, kids kids are amazing. Kids are are, are beautiful, gorgeous, strong, imaginative, creative, insightful individuals who can really provide something to us not only during national child protection week but throughout the year and we need to be tapping into that because i think when we start to value kids when we start to value their contributions it changes the frame it moves them from you know these these ignorant appendages of adults to active contributors within our community so changing the rhetoric changing the language and saying what are we going to do to ensure that all kids are not only empowered but are are safe and are, are valued contributors to their communities.
0: I have loved this conversation. There is so much for us to take away and to think about not just during National Child Protection Week, but in every day of our lives. Tim Moore, Rani Kumar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Aaron. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. There was so much in there for us to take away and to think about. If Anna Greta Hunter were with us today, I know she would be saying what we need to do is value care, value caring for children. So I will say that in Anna Greta's absence. And throughout that conversation, I was thinking, Of a little boy who was nine who participated in some of our research. And many of the children that we'd been talking with talked about how frightened they were in their communities and how unsafe they felt. And when we asked this little boy if he ever felt unsafe, he said no, because if anything went wrong when I'm out on the street, I'll just yell and yell and yell. And I know some of my neighbors will come and look after me. What a great community that little boy lived in. How wonderful it would be if all children felt so safe, cared for and protected in their communities. Let's think about that during National Child Protection Week. This podcast is produced by ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy and we'll leave a link to the publications and the sources, including the jigsaw, that we discussed on our Crawford LinkedIn page. We love hearing from you, our audience, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford Or, very excitingly, we have a new email address and you can reach us on policyforumpod at anu.edu.au. That's all we have time for this week. Anna Greta will be back next week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now.